Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. I'm going to wager that if you're listening to this podcast, you love bookstores. And not only that, you're very likely love a particular bookstore, hopefully one that is close by to you and that serves as a gathering place in your community. But local community bookstores are a dying breed. They were already disappearing when COVID drove many more to the grave. It is from this dire context that Jeff Deutsch's In Praise of Good Bookstores makes the powerful argument that we must fight to value independent bookstores as they represent the best in culture, in our democracy, and in ourselves. With chapters on space, abundance, value, community, and time, in Praise of Good Bookstores gives precise language to the qualities we intuit about the meaningfulness of bookstores. Much more than simply a shop for buying books as useful commodities, exceptional bookstores, Jeff writes, reflect and create their communities. They are spaces for encountering difference, for learning and enlightenment, but also, crucially, for idleness. For the pleasure of browsing outside the utilitarian hours of capitalism is what draws Jeff back to his favorite bookstores and what has guided his directorship of one of the country's most treasured temples of books, the seminary co-op bookstores in Chicago. Propelled by a deep philosophical inquiry into the value of bookstores, in praise of good bookstores is an enchanting read full of remarkable quotes from writers, philosophers, and academics all of whom have fallen under the spell of community bookstores of every species. This is a book for anyone who cares deeply about one of 
these community spaces and who worries that they may disappear along with all of their cultural wealth. Jeff Deutsch is director of Chicago's Seminary Co-op Bookstores. It is with great pleasure that I welcome him to the show. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for that beautiful, beautiful introduction and for your wonderful podcast. I'm thrilled to be on it. I'm thrilled to have you here in particular because I think we share a uh, a particular, almost ecstatic love for bookstores. Um, and this is a book very much about that ecstatic love, but also about talking about bookstores as a vital component of a civil society. And as much as it's a a story of many bookstores, it is in part a story of one particular bookstore, the uh -huh. bookstore you direct, Seminary Co-op Bookstores in Chicago. Uh, can you talk about Seminary Co-op's very particular format as a nonprofit and how it's both like alike and quite different from many bookstores in the U.S.? Absolutely. And uh, we do share, I appreciate the term ecstatic love and the etymology of ecstatic being uh, to, to be outside of the body, to take one out of ourselves, and mm. uh, the way that love, uh, certainly as Eros, would you know, bind us uh, as well. And I think there is something about a great bookstore that both takes us out of ourselves and returns us to ourselves in a way that I, I'm sure somehow subtly you meant in, in saying that that term, because <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, and I'll say that the summary co-op, uh, I'll share a bit of a, just a brief personal um uh, anecdote about how I came to the seminary co-op. I was, it was 30 years ago this January that I first went to the seminary co-op. I moved to Chicago in the dead of winter, deeply depressed. I was despondent. I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And I moved in with my sister who was, uh, studying philosophy at the university of Chicago, trying to figure out my path forward. And the seminary co-op was the place that showed me a world of possibilities that I didn't think were open to me. And uh, again, both pulled me out of myself. I was deeply depressed and it helped me uh, kind of uh, step away from this wallowing, but then also showed different versions of who I might become and what I might you know, find as I figured my way uh, forward. So it really was a powerful experience. And I came here as a director 10 years ago. And since that time, we have become a not-for-profit bookstore whose mission is book selling. Mm -hmm. And so, and I appreciate the question about what makes the story different um, and, and also the similarities. I think the difference is something that is best experienced, but the idea behind writing in praise of good bookstores was to try to articulate on the page, or I should say replicate on the page, the experience of browsing in the bookstore, uh, there is very, th th there are very few things that I think can be uh, compared to a good browse uh, in a bookstore because of the expanse of time and space, because of the, uh, uh, the patience that one can bring to the endeavor and the, the calm and the quiet that the, the bookstore uh, both creates and, and then supports. Mm -hmm. And the seminary co-op has always focused on the browse. It's focused on bringing in books that might sell slowly, books of serious uh, inquiry, uh, academic interest, or literary interest, philosophical interest that uh, aren't necessarily driven by the market and aren't uh, the kinds of books that one might find in any other 
bookstore. There, there are plenty of those books as well. Uh, but that the privileging of not just books, but books that sell slowly and books that sell to very specific audiences is is the thing that I believe makes the co-op singular. Mm. Um, and so what what I tried to do and what we as a community tried to do was take those virtues and institutionalize them so that we no longer apologize for what we saw as the wise inefficiencies that made us great and seemed to make us into a failure because we weren't succeeding as a retail endeavor mm -hmm. and create a structure that would measure the very things that we all thought were uh, what made the co-op wor worthwhile and uh, one of the great cultural institutions in the country. In, in some ways, the, the famous front table at the co-op as 116 titles um, is indicative of this set of of values and inutility and and perhaps selective but not always popular choices and, right. and talk about like what tends to be on that front table and how it is a kind of representation of these values. Absolutely, yeah, so the front table of most bookstores is what. Uh, the the shopkeep, the bookstore owner would want to feature and say, this is what the community is reading or this is what the publishing world is presenting. And in that way, our front table is no different. Uh, but our, our community focuses on uh, academic and scholarly books, including some incredibly specific topics. And what's beautiful about the front table, and that might be different from a regular bookstore perhaps, is that this particular assemblage is uh, anti-disciplinary in a world that really focuses on disciplines, right? So when uh, we're in an academic setting, specialization is the key, uh, and that is what original thought, uh, you know, tends to to uh, where it comes from is from specialization. And a lot of the books that we'll put on the front table are by university presses or by wonderful scholarly presses like Norton does an incredible job with serious nonfiction. Uh, One World uh, as an imprint does an incredible job. And we'll put those books front and center and they speak to each other within this assemblage in a way that it's rare that they have an opportunity to do so uh, outside of uh, the bookstore itself. And uh, the conversations that end up happening on that front table between these authors and then of course between the browser and, and the books is uh, unlike any other because there isn't a space where we can really trouble the disciplines in that way and follow mm -hmm. a curiosity that, uh, frankly, is what brought so many of us into bookstores or the academy or uh, our workplaces in the first place, but then is no longer uh, something that we have the luxury of pursuing. The the mention of university presses makes me think of how much you talk in this book about um, books as outside commodities, and yes. that in fact university presses are are bad commodities. <laughs> they sell at a very very small margin. They're expensive, and you really want to think about bookstores as in some way different from a pure commodity locale, like a clothing store or something else. Can you talk about books as as commodities and non-commodities and bookstores that can or try to make the choice to not deal solely in utilitarian commodity sales? Absolutely. And I so appreciate the question. Um, I, I will say that, uh, that books are commodities, full stop. And uh, 
And there is something important about the books that are intended to be commodities and the books that are not, right? So uh, books have a, a price on them. There is a, a cost to creating them. And the book that is meant to be the big holiday gift guy, you know, gift book of the season or the next best-selling novel, which are, those are truly commodities. And they might be works of literature or uh, you know, valuable um, uh, reference works, but they're meant to be sold and sold quickly and have a return on the investment. The books that we tend to sell overwhelmingly are not commodities. They're not intended to uh, be bought and sold quickly and make their money back by uh, in the marketplace. And the difference between those two kinds of books is really uh, critical to the model that we're uh, pursuing. So for instance, uh, one of the best-selling books of the year is the Prince Harry uh, memoir, which uh, sold, I forget how many millions of copies. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we sold a handful of them. And we'll, you know, if anyone wants any book, we'll sell it to them. And that was a book that was, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of media. It was meant to hit the bestseller list. It, the publisher expects it's going to make uh, significant money for the, for the imprint. And alongside it, there are, other books that are published that are quiet novels or collections of poetry or uh, a, book, a book of philosophy that is meant to sell much slower and meant to be in print for years. It's not meant to be a book of the moment, which is something that uh, John Ruskin, the critic, uh, would talk about as the books of the moment versus the books of all time. Both mm -hmm. could be good or bad, but the, the, these books that we tend to sell are often books of all time, or at least aspirants to that, and trying to build the same financial structure to support both uh, the commodity and what, what uh, you know, Lewis Hyde uh, called the gift, the gift economy of these books that are really meant to uh, circulate and to uh, you know, provide insight and meaning and, uh, and, and value to, to you know, living a, a more informed life that perhaps should be considered differently and the, and the market mm -hmm. should uh, support what it's actually meant to do, which is not uh, act as a commodity the way that a pair of socks or a cup of coffee uh, acts, but really act as a cultural good. And you, you talk about that idea of the gift, the book being mm -hmm. something that forges a connection um, and that that is its salient difference from the idea of something that you purchase and use in a utilitarian way. Do you want to say something more about books as as gifts? Because I think on first read, someone thinks, oh, well, yeah, sure, I give I give books as gifts. But you're meaning something quite different. Right, right. I like so many of our great novelists and writers. I'm, I'm deeply inspired by Lewis Hyde's work uh, and his um, his his book, The Gift, which uh, was it is unlike any book I've ever read. It's this, this mix of anthropology and uh, literary criticism and philosophy, and, and and really tries to understand the nature of uh, the gift which circulates, as opposed to the commodity which uh, can be taken out of out of circulation. And that the things that matter most to us in in life in general um, are things that can't be measured, right? Things that are that are not necessarily you know, market-driven and uh, things like meaning or pleasure or hope or kindness, justice, wisdom, things like that, that uh, really are the ultimate meaning of our lives. Uh, 
these are the things that are uh, hardest to measure. And so uh, the idea of the gift is this, this acknowledgement that uh, there is an abundance to those unmeasurable things. They, uh, they're not zero sum. And the idea that we can take the influences we have, the uh, warmth that we receive, the knowledge that we glean, and pass it along, add, add something to it and pass it along uh, for current and future generations is something that's, that's you know, uh, deeply powerful as an idea. And we get, because it's not measured in a world that quantifies everything, we have to figure out a way to increase our eloquence as qualifiers and find a way to, to tell these stories better so that there is a recognition that there is tremendous value in, in items that might not have a, a market value. Uh, and books uh, and uh, the, the sorts of books, I should say, that, that we're talking about here are certainly uh, uh, you know, tremendous value. And then the spaces that support these books and I don't just mean bookstores. I mean, you know, libraries and and other spaces mm -hmm. that have uh, books and just books uh, that, cre that create this totalizing environment that a, a book palace will create must qualify their 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 value. Otherwise, they they will no longer exist because we don't have a mechanism for uh, for that measure. If you know, but through through quantitative analysis. Mm. I have to read this book, your description of it, which is so beautiful. Um, it, it seems to speak to so many things, not just not just bookstores and books, but something that's lost in our particular age of quantifying everything and pulling it out of circulation as commodity. So I'm I don't know the book by Hyde, but I I certainly will seek it out. I'm sure you'll I'm sure you'll love it. And I let that be the first of hopefully many book recommendations in this podcast. Yes, I, yes. I will say it, it's not just uh, you know not, uh, novelists love this book. Uh, and you know when it was first published, uh, the the blurbs read like a who's who of uh, you know the great novelist at the time, Margaret Atwood, and like that. And, and then it was republished 10, 15 years ago, and Zadie Smith, and all all these people who who absolutely love it. But I think humanists and academics in general whose work is so important. Uh, and yet have a hard time defending their work in the marketplace, uh, I think it resonates with them as well for the uh, for obvious reasons. Mm. Well, it, it sounds so beautiful. Uh, I, I have a question about the way in which you came to books. So you were, you were raised in an Orthodox Jewish family in which books were really sanctified, so much so that you grew up seeing adults kiss the front cover of a book when they finished reading it. <laughs> People in your family and community were reading and discussing and debating books and their ideas all the time. And yet for you, leaving the orthodoxy of that religion led you to a different kind of devotion to books, but one which in some ways mirrors aspects of that um, time of growing up. How did religion make you a reader and how did it drive you ultimately to be a different kind of reader and bookseller? Yes. Uh what an astute question. Thank you. I, um, yeah, I've, I've thought a lot about that reluctantly, uh, because I, mm. I did, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community and frankly found it very alienating. And it took me, uh, uh, decades before I realized how much that, uh, my, my childhood and, and the, the yeshiva system and the, uh, general reverence around, I mean, we were the people of the book, right? And the, the general reverence mm -hmm. around the written 
word, well, the oral law, but you know, it was written by the time I cut it, uh, really informed my approach to books, which felt different in the secular world. And I think that there is uh, there's something about the engagement with a text that allows us to uh, be in, engaged with the wider world, but also find our own way. That was really the difference for me between the orthodoxy I grew up in and then the world that I kind of created for myself. And and this is something that uh, there's been some criticism of this, and certainly from the, the religious world. Uh, uh, my book was covered in, in the Jewish press, which I appreciated uh, because I am something of a heretic. We call it an apikores, which is uh, Aramaic transliteration of Epicurean, mm. uh, which uh, I think is has to do with Epicurus basically saying the gods, whether they exist or not, you know, the gods don't matter to us, uh, huh. uh, or rather, we don't matter to them. And, and that is, uh, you know, the Talmud uh, certainly has a lot of uh, arguments with Greek philosophy uh, and uh, turnings away from Greek philosophy. And uh, and so being a heretic and being in what's called an apikores, which is a, a, a very powerful uh, term in 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 the yeshivas, uh, and not something you want to be called. I, I was I was pleased that there was engagement, and one of the things that uh, popped up a few times was this uh, recognition that, well, it's interesting that he says that this is related somehow to the Talmud, and that we can assemble our own version of these holy books. But the fact is, the idea is that we all read these books together. There's an orthodoxy to it, right? Mm -hmm. And there's this uh, beautiful thing, actually. It's called the Daf Yomi. It's the page of the day, and it's uh, and it's. When I read this in the book, yeah. I had no idea that this was a thing, and it's incredible. But ex please yeah. explain. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's um, so the, the the tradition I come out of. It's the Talmud, not the Torah. It's the oral law, not the Torah. That is the book, really. And the Talmud is uh, sixty-three books, uh, and it's massive and it's this collection of legal writing and, and fables and ethical writings and uh, I personally don't care for the legal writings but I love the fables I love the literature I love the ethical writings and in the early 20th century there was a rabbi Yehuda Meir Shapiro who started this program called the Dafyomi the page of the day and they took the 63 books of the Talmud and split them up I forget the number it's like 20 2700 days or something that each it's 2700 pages the entire thing so each day there's one page that every orthodox jew the world over would read and and when when they were done after 7 years they'd have what was called a siyum which is you know a completion of the a party for the completion of of the work and so we would know and this happens today this is i don't know what today's dafyomi is what today's page of the mm -hmm. day is but there is one that all the orthodox jews the world over who are subscribed to this program and there are many are all reading and it's this beautiful um, coming together. And, and and so the critique of what I've been saying, which is that we all create our own Talmuds. We're all our own Rebbe's. We all follow our own path. And that what for me was uh, this turning away from orthodoxy into what what was really like this, you know, heterodoxy that felt critically important to me to live a, a, a free and meaningful life. Uh, really, they weren't the same. And those critiques are correct. It, it's not the same. And for me, the bookstore, the serious bookstore, is a haven for the heterodox, and it's the place in which mm -hmm. we can become our own rebbe's and build our own talmuds. And frankly, that is the world I prefer to live in. And there might not be uh, dialogue on the you know we're not reading the same book every the you know, same page of the book every day, but 
there's something about the devotion to the the life of reading and to the palaces of books and to uh, what it means to be around readers and browsers that that is its own binding agent that I think is is enough to create for me a community that uh, I, I find nourishing and uh, creates a sense of belonging. Mm. Well, that that idea of of reading communally in the, in the sort of beautiful universal sense that you could be on the same page while it doesn't necessarily encourage heterodoxy it does um it it really sparks uh wonderful imaginings for me and it and it makes me actually think of teaching my classes mm-hmm. and how that what my students might be reading the same sentence that I'm reading at a given time but having such different ideas about what it means Absolutely. Uh, and I love that. Absolutely. Uh, you you make a, a number of, of resonant points about the meaningfulness of bookstores pr- as providing a, a microcosm of democracy in their Pre- shelves yeah. and in their patrons. Can you take us through that theory of the bookstore as a certain vision of uh, democracy in action? Sure, absolutely. Well, I think it begins with that heterodoxy and, and this recognition that uh, not only are we all singular, uh, but we're uh, even distinct from ourselves, versions of ourselves at any given point. And so much of what happens in these spaces, uh, first of all, on the democratic side, the doors the doors open and anybody can come in. So there, there, there are no gatekeepers in terms of who can enter the space. And what happens is this multiplicity of voices sit on the shelves in, fr- in front of the browser. They, anyone can come in and find both uh, you know echoes of what they're thinking and they can they can recognize themselves on the shelf and in the books but also find perspectives and opinions and beliefs that that challenge them and subvert subvert their worldview and then there are these debates and dialogues that happen in a way that um is not always uh you know respectful it could often be the books can be at war with each other mm-hmm. uh but it's but it's a quiet place where that that those uh, conflicts can play out within the individual, and there can be a, an earnest engagement with the world around us. And what we find, I think, and, and there are plenty of studies, I, I won't be able to cite any uh, offhand, uh, but I work with a, quite a few literacy organizations, and there's so many studies about what uh, having books in the home of a, of a young person uh, mm-hmm. will do for their ability to you know succeed by certain metrics or whatever the case is. And for communities to have book spaces that have these exterior landscapes of uh, different ideas and ways of being in the world, ways of being human uh, that can both reflect and inform the interior landscape that we're we're constantly tending, and certainly as young people building, but then tending and 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 pruning and and beautifying that exchange between those uh between the world around us and what happens inside of us certainly in a bookstore can create something that so few places uh, actually stimulate which is mm. this this confrontation with the self and our community and our way of living and our understanding of what's possible both the best within us but also the worst imagining the worst within us so that perhaps we can avoid it and that is uh, something, again, from a value perspective that uh, just can't put a price on. And in an age where dialogue is so infrequent, where meaningful exchange of ideas and public discourse is so 
broken, mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. is this place that uh, I witness every day where these these conversations do and can happen, and we should find ways as a society to support that. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off agreed uh you, you quote the novelist marilyn robinson talking about how the great sir greatest service a community performs is giving its members a sense of the possible and i was struck by how politics today seems bent on making things like public libraries closed off from the possibility of of encountering heterodoxy, of something encountering something that would change one's mind or grow one's sense of empathy for someone else's experience. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's incumbent upon bookstores to stand in, in the fray in the face of that kind of really a kind of forced ignorance? Right, right. Well, um, the, the, the discourse is evolving on this in such a, a wonderful way. Um, you know, uh, Jan Nguyen, the novelist, ha, ha, um, has written beautifully about how fiction does not make us more empathetic, as it turns out. And uh, and there, the conversations around uh, hate speech and free speech and, the, and these sorts of things, uh, especially in the last you know ten years or so, have been incredible. Incredible uh, to to witness, and uh, I I wouldn't. I, I think that a bookstore like the Seminary Co-op, uh, which is founded upon these principles of the free and open exchange of ideas, and that no book that's on the shelf is endorsed. The ideas aren't endorsed by their being on the shelf, and it's in an academic community that also serves a larger community that has an incredible array of uh, viewpoints and opinions about every issue. Um, this, our, our store is is proud to have those <clears throat> diverse opinions and, and, and voices on the shelf. Um, but there's an interesting conversation happening now about what actually you know, books and reading can do that is destructive as well. Um, and then, of course, there, we can't turn away from the conversations around school boards and school libraries and, and what's happening in places like Florida and Texas, which uh, you know, Texas has just passed a law that criminalizes, I think it's a felony, uh, bookstores if they sell books to schools that have objectionable content. And oh, you're ha- kidding me. I did not uh, know that that and, was a, and, a law. And, yes. In the state of Texas, and there are other states that are... Um, uh, writing similar legislation, uh, and this passed in the last two months, and this recognition that we have to uh, 
decide what isn't about objectionable and reflect community standards, uh, this isn't a new conversation. So like while there are there is an evolution that's happening around how those who are advocates for reading in books are talking about it, there isn't it's not a new conversation to say that we're always going to have troubling uh, you know, a, a literature that that is out there and uh, following the the actual conversation about who gets to make the decision, who what the the um, the measures are, what the criteria are, like these these are incredibly complicated conversations, and I think that one of the things that my, I hope is that booksellers can uh, uh, receive the respect that librarians currently receive who work closely on issues of intellectual freedom and acknowledging that they spend so much of our time, we spend so much of our time, I should say, uh, filtering books, selecting books, deciding what is reflecting the community, responding to what the community tells us we're missing, and really setting, not we're not setting the standards, but we're acknowledging the standards that exist in the community and creating conversations that uh, trouble easy consensus, but also acknowledge the work that's happening to to build what Mar- Marilyn Robinson calls a you know, more generous community in mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. line. And, and what does it mean to build a more generous community through these these bookstores and libraries and spaces that support literature? You keep track of some depressing statistics concerning independent bookstores in the U.S. In in 1994, there were 7,000 independent bookstores in the country, and as of 2019, there were 2,500. Is the bookstore as we know it going extinct, and do you see a path forward for saving bookstores? Um, so I... I believe unequivocally that the bookstore in the 21st century cannot resemble the bookstore in the 20th century. It will not survive if we continue to pretend that these are retail endeavors that uh, can survive if they just carry the right amount of books and sell books quickly and pay a low salary to booksellers, uh, minimum wage, or uh, the lowest possible wage we can pay that these bookstores will survive. They won't. Uh, now, many bookstores will survive because they have owners who uh, are supplementing the business in other ways. They might have, they might be independently wealthy, but we don't have a model for the 21st century bookstore today. Um, I have a lot of hope though. So I'm not, I, I, I do think that we will not only survive, but thrive because stores like Buffalo Street Books and Ithaca, which is a co-op uh, run, you know, with Lisa Sweezy as the director, who's doing really sm- you know, smart and and um, community-based work uh, mm-hmm. around building a model that will support uh, an idiosyncratic bookstore. And there are so many younger booksellers in their 30s and 40s who are trying new models. Uh, our model of the not-for-profit whose mission is bookselling is another uh, alternative, but you know, the, we all have to answer these questions for ourselves of uh, why do we even need a bookstore in the 21st century? Because uh, no reader actually needs a bookstore to buy a book, and bookstores, mm-hmm. as I've said, can't make a living selling books alone. And so do we even need them? And some communities might say they don't, uh, but those two will have to figure out a way to support these institutions. And I think as a as a culture and a society at large, and this is the if there's any argument in in my book, this is the argument is that we should deliberately build a model to support what we want these bookstores to do, 
as opposed to try and fit them into an mm -hmm. antiquated model that mm -hmm. frankly didn't work to begin with and certainly isn't working now and will not uh, be viable. I think even by 2030, we're going to see a tremendous amount of closures uh, you know, during and, and since the, the pandemic started and during during lockdown, quite a few bookstores opened. And so uh, if one were to look at the numbers now, according to the American Booksellers Association, I don't have them handy, but there have been an increase in bookstores uh, since I wrote the book, hmm. and which is wonderful, but it doesn't encourage me because I don't think that opening a bookstore is the hard part. I think keeping a bookstore open is the hard part. And how many of those bookstores will be around in five years is the question that I'm going to be tracking. And if if those stores can make it, and many of them are running on alternative models. So I'm watching it closely. And if those stores can make it and we can build a different industry to support this work, and I say industry because the publishers need to be a part of it, the distributors, institutions, mm -hmm. including academic ones, municipalities need to be a part of it. We actually could build something really special and the tide could turn. Is part of the problem that uh, companies, monoliths like Amazon, have so devalued uh, books in order to um, push higher higher margin items in their uh, in their uh, warehouses <laughs> that the idea of convincing people at least in a not in a nonprofit context in a profit context <laughs> that a book is expensive in some way and and worth their money is is that impossible right right um Yes, uh, for for sure. And uh, the the book that that I would recommend uh, on this topic is Danny Kane's How to Resist Amazon and Why. Uh, I don't spend that much time thinking or talking about Amazon, partly because Danny does such a good job of it, and so many others are um, articulating that so well. Um, but I also think that um, we have devalued the book. Uh, it's not just Amazon, uh, and mm -hmm. and it, and that as a culture we don't look to books the way perhaps we once did perhaps we never did but certainly the way that we um if we were rational economic creatures and we looked at the value of the money we spend and the time we like the value we get for that money and the time we spend doing the things that we're spending money on uh books that we read and reread or books that nourish us or change our lives are clearly uh, uh, worth much more than the cover price uh, and yet we don't uh, we don't see them that way and and I understand why again I I would not advocate for uh, just raising prices I wouldn't advocate for uh, raising um, or putting up barriers to getting these books I think that we need to finance the work differently I don't know that uh, so our solution isn't about raising prices. We want to make sure that everyone gets paid along the chain, including the publishers and obviously the booksellers um, and the authors and the agents, that everyone who's creating these books gets paid. And we want to make sure that the reader can get the book relatively cheaply. And so can we come together and support this work through, you know, we don't have a department of culture in this country. We, you know, mm -hmm. Can we support this work through uh, uh, philanthropy, through uh, people who Perhaps, and I don't think Jeff Bezos would do it, but you mentioned Amazon, uh, but perhaps uh, other uh, um, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who broke a lot of things in, uh, as they established their, their companies and did a lot of things really well and broke things that should have been broken and then broke things by accident 
and made tremendous amounts of money. Could they put some of that money back into uh, the some of the communities and and uh, industries that they broke? And uh, one obvious example of this is uh, Craigslist uh, comes out and it is all these classified ads and the engine that drove journalism, local journalism, long-form investigative journalism, that whole economic model just breaks basically, you know, overnight. And no one was intending to do that. Craig was not intending to do that. Uh, And can we find a way to put that money back into supporting local journalism and long-form investigative journalism and things of that sort? Similarly, when a company like Amazon does devalue the book with us as, uh, you know, complicit uh, um, you know, uh, agents of this, can we put some of that money back, instead of uh, doing space launches and all of that, back into into the industry uh, and back into the, the creation of what is a tremendous cultural heritage for us, which is the mm. book? Yeah, I well, I, I will hope. <laughs> I, I, I worry that those... Um, those particular entities have have little interest in the things right. that we have interest in, but I I, I will try and remain hopeful. <laughs> um, one of the things that does make me hopeful is that not only is Seminary Co-ops uh, a bookstore, but it also newly has an imprint. And I wonder if you'd talk about producing books as well as selling right. them. Absolutely, thank you for that. We actually have two imprints. I'm thrilled to talk about both of them. Uh, one of the things that, uh, uh, as I was writing the book, I was thinking about was what actually is the work of the bookseller if it's not uh, retail, buying and selling, buying cheap and selling dear, which is what a good retailer does. And a good retailer provides for their community what the, what the community needs. Uh, but booksellers do other things. And I had uh, um, narrowed it down to four elements, which were filtration, selection, assemblage, and enthusiasm. And pulling assemblage out of it, perhaps, the filtration, selection, and enthusiasm is also really the work of the editor and the publisher. And there's a wonderful tradition that goes back centuries of booksellers as publishers and publishers as booksellers. And there's a a current movement of of, uh, booksellers as publishers, including City Lights and McNally Editions from McNally Jackson. And so we have launched two imprints. The first one is called Seminary Co-op Offsets which is in partnership with Northwestern University Press. And the second one is called Ode Books, which is in partnership with Prickly Paradigm Press. And I'll start with Ode Books, which is uh, what I'm tremendously excited about. We have yet to publish a book, but uh, 2024 should see the first two at minimum. Oh, that's Ode, exciting. Isn't that exciting? Yes. And, and this is, these are um, short books. They're fifteen to 40,000 word books that are like Prickly Paradigm, which Marshall Solins, the great anthropologist, uh, ran until he died in 2019. Uh, and his Prickly Paradigm books are these diatribes about everything you think is right with the world is actually wrong with the world, whether mm-hmm. it's academic publishing or museums or universities, brunch, whatever it is. Like it's, You think it's good, it's not. And we're going to tell you why. And um, and what we did with Ode Books is uh, took, took an opposite tack, which is we're going to talk to you about books and bookmaking and the life of the reader and what it takes to to create this world that we all love to inhabit, we readers, and we're going to celebrate it. Every book is going to be a celebration, not a diatribe. Mm-hmm. So that's the ode. It's O-D-E. 
Um, the first two books that will be published next year, the first one is by Paul Yamazaki, who's been at City Lights Booksellers for over 50 years and is one of the legendary booksellers in the country and has created something that is so special uh, in our culture. And he is, uh, this will be his first book, and it's about his life and books and bookselling. And then Donna Seaman, who is the fiction editor for Booklist and the author of four books uh, and one of our great literary citizens. Her last book was Identity Unknown about uh, four female artists of the 20th century. She's writing her first memoir of a life in books, and it is beautiful and lyrical and insightful and helps us all understand the sensibility that goes into this career in books. Uh, we have another book that, by one of your colleagues, I believe, uh, Kasia Bartoczynska, uh, which will be coming out, I believe, in 20, I hope in 2025, about book clubs and the different way that we read books with people, whether it's mm. in an academic setting or for um, one's own interest or in prison, in a prison setting, and the ways and uh, the differences and similarities uh, between those. And uh, she's funny and smart, and the book is uh, just dazzling. It's a dazzling book, and her, her style is fantastic. And to have uh, one of our you know smartest academics writing a book for a popular audience is just one. It's something I'm so proud uh, to be able to publish. So yeah, she has that. She has a dazzling intellect and a clarity of form that is uh, that combination is in in uh, dire need in academia. Right, absolutely, and and a voice that reflects the best of literature. And so mm -hmm. often, our academic uh, academics are are taught to write in in some uh, some style that we we lose sight of what engages readers in the first place. And I'm far be it for me to critique any academic writing, but I will just celebrate the writing of a, a dazzling intellect who knows how to connect with a, a general audience. So, mm -hmm. I can't wait for her book. Yeah, so it's going to be wonderful. So so that's Ode Books. And then uh, Seminary Cope Offsets, I'll just briefly share. Uh, we published in February of 2023 a reissue of Leon Forrest's wonderful Divine Days, which is uh, one of the best novels I've ever read. It's a jazzy Ulysses of the South Side of Chicago, uh, <laughs> and it's, it, it's intentionally done that way. Leon Forrest was one of our best writers of the 20th century. He's uh, under undersung, uh, and this book takes place over eight days in 1966 in on the south side of Chicago and tries, like Ulysses, to just capture the life of the place. Uh, and the, the, the language is, is joyful and, and, and uh, difficult, but it, difficult in a way that really captures the, the patterns of speech and the music of how we actually talk to each other. And like Joyce, it captures it in so many different registers. Uh, and so many different elements of life are, are in that page. Uh, Leon's first three books were edited by Toni Morrison, and they had a wonderful dialogue throughout their lives. Mm. And uh, Ralph Ellison was a fan, and, and really, ever anyone who was everyone, uh, everyone who was anyone, had something uh, beautiful to say about Leon Forrest and his work, including uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. called this book the War and Peace of the African-American Novel when it was first published. And okay. anyway, so it's, it's out in the world and it is just a tremendous book. I hope, I hope as many people uh, read it who can get their hands on it. 
Yeah, well, I'm certainly going to get my hands on it. It sounds incredible. I haven't heard of it, which I'm embarrassed to say, but um, I will uh, I will rectify that situation. Um, while I have you recommending books, I wonder uh -huh. if you'd talk, I mean, it's it's sort of a mean question to ask a bookseller to, uh -huh. to recommend books, but I'd love to know what you've been reading recently and if you're willing to, to recommend something. Right. No, not at all. I, I, that's what I do for a living and I love it. And one of the things I love about Seminary Co-op is that I, I read uh, widely and I don't always read what's, what's just coming out. Right. And so um, I'll share two books that I, I read recently that were published this year or last year in the last two years. And then um, two books that I have read recently that, that were uh, a little bit older. Uh, so I, absolutely love there's a new novel uh, by toya wolf called last summer on state street it's another south side of chicago novel and it's uh about um four girls growing up in the late 90s in the uh yeah, chicago housing authority buildings uh and it, it's just slice of life that is just so delicate about girlhood and what it means to live in public housing, what it means to move from public housing into other uh, other milieus and the community that's created, but also all the challenges. Uh, and it's it's just beautifully done. I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, alongside it, I, I read, or I should say right after, it wasn't alongside it, right after it, I read Pierre Hadot's new book on Goethe's spiritual exercises called Don't Forget to Live. And it's Hadot's last book, uh, was published in 2008, I believe, um, and, or maybe finished in 2008 and published in 2010, something like that. And Hedo writes uh, just so clearly about Goethe and uh, the the way in which his work and a couple of different works uh, pick up some of the ancient philosophers' exercises in order to live a, a, a more meaningful life and and find a, a spiritual. Uh, uh, path forward, including things like what it means to live in the present moment or what it means to have the view from above where we really zoom out and and see the world uh, with a wider perspective. And I just found it to be a, an immensely beautiful book. Um, so there are two recent ones. Um, mm -hmm. And then I read a collection of Yeats poetry called Words for Music, perhaps, which I had never read. I'd read a couple of the poems. This is the collection... Uh, it was published, I think, in 31, maybe. It was the early 30s. Uh, and it's the collection that has the Crazy Jane poems and the sequence with the Crazy Jane poems. And it is just through and through, poem by poem, almost verse by verse, uh, exceptional. And mm. the way that it not just uses language, but refrain and rhythm, I, I just, I was so moved by it. And I thought it was a tremendous, tremendous work. Um I love the callback to Yates. That's that's oh, wonderful. It's so good. Well, then the last thing I'll do is briefly. That's uh, even um, uh, a callback to something older. Is um, I recently was was reading Prometheus myths and uh, read uh, uh, Prometheus uh, Bound for the first time. Actually, I hadn't I hadn't read the original, and again, found it so moving and. Uh, alive and 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 these Prometheus myths. I, I never had a quite a, quite a few uh, versions in addition to to the original, um, but uh, I shouldn't say the original. In addition to uh, Aeschylus, uh, including Shelley's and and 
uh, Byron has one and Gerta has one and, and they're, and they're, they're fun. They're really fun to read. All of them are fun to read. Uh, but there was something about the, um, the play that I just found to be so moving and so relevant to, uh, what it feels like to live now. Well, these are certainly the the most diverse array of recommendations <laughs> sure. that I've received, and that's only fitting for the director of the Seminary Co-op's bookstores. But I'm going to make sure that my listeners um, get links to, to purchase these from independent bookstores. And I just want to recommend so highly In Praise of Good Bookstores by Jeff Deutsch. It is just for anyone who loves a bookstore, this is going to become the the book that you keep at hand to quote at length to friends and to become a evangelist for your local bookstore. So Jeff, thank you so much for this beautiful book and for this wonderful conversation. Thank you, Chris. I so appreciate it. And I appreciate everything you do on behalf of the, the cultural world at large, the literary world at large. It's really special. Well, thank you so much. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Jeff Deutsch, one of the great ambassadors for the palaces of books that we love and count on. His book, In Praise of Good Bookstores, which you should buy immediately, is one that I will reread and hold with reverence in the years to come. May we always be judged by how many bookstores thrive in our communities. If you're near the Chicagoland area, please visit the Seminary Co-op's bookstores, where you will perhaps find Jeff curating his incredible store. If that's too far a drive, you can find links to purchase Jeff's book and all his wonderful recommendations at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.